Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. We begin our program this evening with a prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening earned his bachelor's in politics, master's in English, and PhD in literature from the University of Dallas. Fellow of the Center for Thomas More Studies, Dr. Matthew Meehan is the Director of Academic Programs for Hillsdale College in Washington, D.C., and has been named the Warsham Teaching Fellow of Hillsdale Allen P. Kirby Jr. Center for Constitutional Studies and Citizenship on Capitol Hill. In 2018, he published a best-selling illustrated book of poetry titled Mr. Meehan's Mildly Amusing Mythical Mammals. Currently teaching history of Western thought, U.S. history, and American literature at the Heights School, his wonderful wife, Molly, and he has seven children, only in order to make a tie with Father Hezekiah. <laughs> it's a joy to have uh, you back, Dr. Meehan. The show's all yours. Let me just say a few words about Cicero generally. One, I'm a big fan, uh, and I... <laughs> I think that's, uh, you'll find that that goes without saying after I've said enough. Um, and, and he's, he's worth your time. Uh, and what I'd like to do is sort of give you a little background information about him, but not a big long biography, except to say he saved the Roman Republic once, and then he may have saved self-government again uh, after he lost the Republic. And he's, he's a great hero to many great saints. Uh, a secular hero, but nevertheless a hero to many great saints. But let me try to, instead of talking so much about his life, I'd like to talk about his influence on the life of the church, um, which is profound. Since the time of his writing this book, the Deo Fiques, or On Duties, this treatise on moral duty, the text of Deo Fiques has been the most read, the most studied, the most copied, the most printed, the most included in study of any work, any work, right? That is to say, it is the most important secular pagan work of philosophy that the church has ever employed. Now, that's a big, bold, massive claim. Most people would find it surprising. But if you go back to as early as St. Ambrose, he put forward the Deo Fiques as ready for Catholic study, ready for Christian study. And he said all of the works of Cicero are to be profoundly and deeply studied, but particularly on duties. 
During the Middle Ages, we have the Scriptorium's copy records. It was the most copied book throughout the Middle Ages. It was also the first book of philosophy off the Gutenberg printing press after the Gutenberg Bible and a physics text by Macrobius. In fact, during the medieval scriptorium records, during the, the copying period, the pre-printing press period, the only book that was copied more was the Song of Songs. So uh, now I don't mean to say that, therefore, that people were reading more Cicero than they were reading Holy Scripture. I just think they probably took more care of Holy Scripture when they, when they read those pages. But uh, nevertheless, it was a fundamental text. It was a required text. Uh, if you wanted to teach in the universities, you would have to write your own on duties and essentially baptize Cicero. It was sort of a thing that Albertus Magnus did and made his students do, including Thomas Aquinas. They had to engage Cicero. He's uh, so close to Catholic and Christian thought that he's actually called Tully in the works of Christian writers. Marcus Tullius Cicero, he gets his nickname Tully because he's considered the master of friendship. Augustine in his Confessions says that he learned a great deal about reason from Aristotle. Uh, and he read his logical treatises and he laughed and said, yeah, I understood them perfectly, but none of my pro professors did, so, but it was great. You know, uh, he loved Aristotle. But he says for moral philosophy, he turned to Cicero and Cicero was the person who first began his conversion. It said he pulled his head up out of the mire. The image is sort of like a, of a head stuck in the mud, sort of being popped out of the mire of sin and turpitude by Cicero's powerful encomium to the pursuit of virtue and wisdom that drew uh, Augustine on to realize he needed to change his life. And that set, uh, set things going. Now, it's obviously the Holy Spirit moving him, but the instrument was Cicero. And that's been the, 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 the church's way, is that for moral philosophy, we use Cicero, the friend, because morals in the sort of this world is about relationships, charity, service, friendship, love, sacrifice, duty, all of the things that re result in our relating to God and to man. That's, that's where we relied on Cicero for. So Aquinas calls him Tully, our friend. Tully, and he calls the other great Roman that was also sort of blessed by the church, Nostri Seneca, our Seneca, those who are closest to us. And then he refers to uh, Aristotle, Aquinas, as the philosopher, which when you come to read Ciceronian thought, you realize that's very high praise, but there's also a criticism there, which is that the philosopher is pursuing things up and beyond and uh, is very concerned with causes and God and high things, but the philosopher is also not known for being the one most of service in the city, one who is sacrificial in, to the community. That's what you would consider like the leader who's willing to sacrifice himself, the, the, the lieutenant in the platoon who's going to be the last one or the captain of the ship, the last one to get off the ship, or the, 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 the Ciceronian guy who's going to die for the Republic. Or Thomas More dying for religious liberty and the rights of the church uh, and the rule of law in England. Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln, the kinds of people who actually lay down their life for everybody else. That's civic friendship. That's the heights of friendship. Now, that's in one sense with Christianity, that dichotomy between the philosopher and the 
the great civic servant uh, or statesman or uh, self-sacrificial friend. That's a false choice in one sense, and and but it's nevertheless it's a big discussion between the contemplative life and the active life, mm-hmm. uh, which quite frankly only through grace do we actually solve that difficulty. And hopefully we can talk a little about that issue. But Cicero was attacked by both Enlightenment thinkers. Uh, he was attacked by Romantics. He was attacked by Kantian duty mongers who wanted to redefine moral duty, not according to nature and charity and common sense, according to various uh, you know sort of modern and postmodern um, systems that were sort of built in the sky as opposed to built on reality um, and our true nature. And by the time you get to the 18, uh, 1900s, he's mostly forgotten. But he was so popular that even in encyclicals uh, of the popes, it was the tradition to quote Cicero without citation. The last pope to, to observe this tradition was John Paul II, Pope St. John Paul II, would quote Cicero and Seneca, the Romans, because they were so close to us. It was the tradition you didn't need to put a footnote in for them. Benedict, who was not educated in the old uh, seminary tradition that involved Cicero and Seneca, uh, he's, one of, he's the first new pope that didn't have that kind of education he cites them and he does but he but he always cites them and you know sort of your typical footnote but before that oftentimes they'll just re- be referred to as you know this great wise saying uh and it turns out it's from seneca or from cicero so cicero himself was born in 106 bc and died in 43 bc he wrote this in 44 bc shortly before he died and he had been fighting Julius Caesar and the destruction of the Republic in favor of a new kingship or uh, uh, an empire where the government would turn to force and fear to try to knuckle under uh, and gain obedience as opposed to justice and virtue, which was attractive and beckoned friendship and cooperation. And he fought manfully uh, to try to bring these things uh, under control through his writing. Uh, and through much civic service. But by the end, he had been exiled, and he was trying to help people flee. But all the while, he continued to write, and he wrote incredibly. And uh, that was the end of his career, which he, while he couldn't do public service anymore, debating in the Senate, he decided he would turn to writing. And so this is one of his final flowers, uh, and it's one of the last flowers of pagan thought before the coming of Christ, which, I, you know, we Ciceronians like to say that don't forget, Christ didn't come to Athens. He, Athenian Hellenic thought needed to simmer a little, and it came much later to Rome. And the, uh, the Roman philosophy actually is essentially the last and, and sort of greatest rendering of Hellenic thought. In fact, the church fathers referred to Cicero as essentially the Greek thought, but clarior, much clearer, much clearer. So that's why it's so useful. There are some philosophical developments from the Greeks to the Romans, uh, and there are even some serious philosophic disagreements between the Greeks and the Romans, and hopefully we can touch on those. But the book itself on duties, just a brief introduction to the text, it was written, as I said, in 44 BC, addressed as an open letter to his son, Marcus. And his son was studying in Athens under Cratopus, Cratopus the Platypus, a famous philosopher there in Athens. 
and he was not doing a good job of remaining studious, running up a bit of an expense account, I think sort of spring break in Florida. Uh, and so dad decided it was time to write a, a long essay about what you really ought to be thinking about as you prepare for the rest of your life and take your studies more seriously. So that's the context. Uh, and it's worth asking uh, yourself, and we can, I'll just throw this out as an initial question for consideration. Why would Cicero, the most brilliant rhetorician or orator in history, why would Cicero decide to deliver to the entire world, knowing, and he's, he's wise enough to know he's writing a classic. Like, he's not stupid, right? Shakespeare knew what he was doing when he was writing. Dante knew this was a poem for all times. Cicero knows he's writing something amazing that will be treasured for a long time. Why would he choose his great treatise on moral duty? Why would he choose the frame of a letter from a father to a son? What is it about duty uh, or officium? What is it about those things that would, you know, sort of make it fitting and proper to frame it in this way? Just a couple other preliminary remarks. Uh, it's, the book is written in three parts. The first part covers honestum, moral righteousness or moral rectitude. And hopefully we can talk about that word honestum in a minute because it's a very important concept in Ciceronian thought. And it, it tends to mean the honorable, the honorable. Think of like an honor lover. What, what are you reputed to have done? which is curious why he would use that for the term for moral rectitude. You think of love of honor as something different from love of God or love of virtue. Um, but he says, no, we're going to call moral virtue the honorable. That's book one. It's all about the four cardinal virtues, as you read in your packet. This is the great exp ex exposition of the cardinal virtues, the four of them together uh, as the key foundation stones, or what he calls the fontes, the fonts, the fountains of virtue uh, or moral duty. And then um, book two is on the expedient or utile, utilitatis, the useful. And then the third book, uh, which is the last great and first great pagan argument for the natural law. Everyone talks about natural law theory and natural law thinking. Too few actually go back to the greatest and the only pre-Christian uh, account of the natural law. This is the book that argues the natural law in book three, the Lex Naturalis. This is where it comes from. And that's where he, he makes the overall argument that the good or the, the honestum, the honorable, the morally righteous, and the useful, the expedient, are always one. They are never separated. And Whenever you think they're separated, uh, you've actually mistaken something. You've actually you, you've misapprehended the situation. And that, that that's true, and it's a long argument to see that that's true, but that that is true uh, winds up being a fundamental foundation stone for natural law theory. So this is also the book of, uh, he's called The Philosopher of Charity. This is the great text that justifies the liberal arts as what uh, St. John Henry Newman called, isn't that fun to say, St. John Henry Newman, called the preparation for virtue, right? The liberal arts is a preparation for virtue. Why would the arts prepare you for virtue? This book, Theophikis, is 
one of the, the greatest accounts of that along with Plato's Republic. But this is really a fully fleshed out version. And then um, last but not least, it's also uh, a beautiful account of the relationship of beauty to moral goodness. Cicero was a great rhetorician and he understood the importance of beauty uh, and its relationship to goodness and truth, so much so that he makes a quiet claim, which we won't be able to put our finger on in our short readings today, but he does make a claim that if you do not understand beauty, if you cannot beautify the goodness and truth of the world, then guess what? You missed one out of three of the transcendental components of anything that comes from the hand of God. And therefore, you don't know it as well as the next person. Think about that for a minute. If you can't render the argument beautifully, you don't actually know it as well because anything that's good would be beautiful. And if you can't conceive of its beauty, you don't conceive of it as well as the person who can. So it's a really strong argument for rhetoric, for art, but also for a beautiful, beautiful moral life, right? That you have a duty to live in a beautiful way for others. Um, anyway, so those are some big sort of global uh, matters. What I'd like to do is just sort of start us at the beginning, and maybe we'll take up this, uh, this first page on page seven. I'm going to try to use the little paragraphs. This is, so this is section five. If you see them, they're on the left-hand side of the column. And I'm going to stick to the English, but occasionally I might torture you with a little uh, recourse to the Latin on the left side, because obviously this was all written in, in Latin. But uh, maybe could I ask someone with a good mic to just to read uh, the opening section here of why he decided to write that first paragraph? Any volunteers? Jane, you want to do it? Sure. But since I have decided to write you a little now and a great deal by and by, I wish, if possible, to begin with a matter most suited at once to your years and to my position. Although philosophy offers many problems, both important and useful, that have been fully and carefully discussed by philosophers, those teachings which have been handed down on the subject of moral duties seem to have the widest practical application. For no phase of life, whether public or private, whether in business or in the home, whether one is working on what concerns oneself alone or dealing with another, can be without its moral duty. On the discharge of such duties depends all that is morally right, and on their neglect, all that is morally wrong in life. Thoughts on this? Anyone or questions about this this very sort of frank and simple opener? It, it seems it should be clear what is wrong and right. It should be evident. You know, but, it, are it, you saying, but it's not? No, I'm saying that he's saying that. And yeah. in case in case his son doesn't uh, understand these things, he's just going to be clear with him. Yes, he. There's a sort of just crystalline, um, look, I'm going to help you discharge these duties, but, and, that's, and figuring out what your duty is is what depends on moral righteousness, right? And that's what either a good life or a bad life, honestas or turpitudo. Those are those two phrases. If you look at the bottom of the Latin, turpitude is you know, vice or moral evil, 
and then honestas is a uh, moral right. Yes, but it's worth noting here that he he also says that um, the simple fact is you can never escape moral duty. Right, you're always in a moment of duty. Now that duty might be to relax. You know, maybe it's time for a glass of wine and to let your mind roam and think about old friends or what have you. But even then, that would be a duty, right? To rest your mind or to do good in that moment. That sort of what he's saying here at the very beginning is: Look, if you can't discern your duty, you can't be good, right? So. So he's just sort of raising the stakes. Like you have to figure out how to tell what your duty is. And it turns out while right and wrong might be pretty straightforward things, knowing when you're supposed to do right or you're supposed to, you know, refrain from doing anything, right? Figuring out the proper moment, that gets pretty tricky. Let's look at this next one. Can you read the next paragraph? I'm going to, if, if the, the feed allows me, I think it's Kathleen. Were you next in the yeah. this next paragraph? I might just preface it by asking this question: Why does he say that this? Put it this way: Why is it a rhetorical question? Right? You assume someone would know, or would would know something that we all share if they ask a rhetorical question. Sort of like, what fool would you know leap from the third story of a building? Right? Now, everybody would assume, yes, I know what gravity is. I know three stories is way too high. I know I'm not Superman, right? So you know a lot of things. What mm -hmm. does he expect his audience to know when he asks this rhetorical question? Or who would presume to call himself a philosopher if he did not inculcate any lessons of duty? Just once you read that paragraph and keep that in mind. Uh, would you please, Kathleen? Moreover, the subject of this inquiry is the common property of all philosophers. For who would presume to call himself a philosopher if he did not inculcate any lessons of duty? But there are some schools that distort all notions of duty by the theories they propose touching the supreme good and the supreme evil. For he who posits the supreme good as having no connection with virtue and measures it not by a moral standard, but by his own interest, if he should be consistent and not rather at times overruled by his better nature, he could value neither friendship nor justice nor generosity. And brave he surely cannot possibly be that counts pain the supreme evil, nor temperate he that holds pleasure to be the supreme good. Thank you. Any thoughts on that question or what Cicero is doing in this passage? He is very studied in a lot of the Greek rhetoricians, so he'd use different techniques to make his arguments. So, so I think he's just he's putting up the the argument already that you know how can how can you argue against this? And he's making his point. He's starting to make his points to, to prove to prove his hypothesis. Yeah, right. Sort of the, the, the clever rhetorician who spikes the argument, like, let's just move on. Like, we're not going to talk about these losers who have other arguments about moral philosophy, claiming that there is no moral duty or that philosophers shouldn't be bothered with moral duty. He just sort of 
puts them in a can and then dumps them in the river. Like, forget it. We're not going to talk about that. Maybe. Yeah. Kathleen? It almost sounds like he's condemning or chastising the philosophers who rather than seeking a, a seeking what is a standard, they, ch- they make up their own. So it's relativism. That's right. That- uh, no, that's right. There's definitely distorting these notions uh, of uh, the supreme good making themselves the measure, right? They sort right. of... Because isn't uh, the purpose of philosophy to seek out what is true and good? So there's an objective standard that you should right. be searching. Right. And, and, and this gets to something which uh, we can talk about uh, a little further on uh, when he starts talking about some of the powers of reason, one of which is analogy, which Thomas Aquinas makes a great deal of arguments with respect to the great analogical argumentation. But that essentially, there's an argument there that says, look, when you, if you're going to be a philosopher who looks up and looks at the first cause and looks at metaphysics and looks very high, but then you claim, no, that's all I'm doing. I don't, I'm not interested in the world down here and our choices. And this is merely a sort of metaphysical argumentation. Philosophy is just metaphysics. He's saying, no, no, no. It, it, it analogously translates down to our life and what we should do. And if, if you just try to cut that, try to sever that, the, the supreme good from a way of living, right? From moral standards, from honestum, you actually, none of the goods of this world stand up. Essentially, the sort of idea, if God is dead, right, then all things are permitted is the modern utterance of this. Cicero's essentially saying, look, if, if the study of God has no bearing on the moral life, i.e. if metaphysical considerations don't then transfer analogically down into how you ought to live your life, then none of the other good human things like generosity and friendship can stand. There's all things are permitted. So not if God is dead, but if God is cut off from man's moral life, that is to say if philosophy isn't moral philosophy, uh, isn't concerned with the original charter of philosophy, which people forget, and most philosophical schools like to ignore, which is philosophy is a preparation for death. That is to say, it's a preparation for a good death. That's the original definition given by Socrates, right, in the study of philosophy, meaning you're headed to the gods, or in our case, we're headed to the triune God, right? So, you know, philosophy being a kind of metaphor for our own theological, you know, and faith journey, but you're headed there, but then you also got to know how to get there. Right. And, and knowing what's there is going to analogically inform how you ought to be getting there. And is, then there's also a, oh, please go ahead. Sorry. Is there also an element here that if a person is not truly living a virtuous life, they cannot claim to be a philosopher because you can't really contemplate what is higher and good if you're not at least trying to live it? So, uh, yes, that's in the background of this, and he will have a sustained indictment throughout book one of the philosophers who essentially claim that they don't have any duties to their city. Because I'm pursuing wisdom, I'm just sort of off the hook. I'm going to go study and do stuff outside in my philosophic commune or my Epicurean garden or my Pythagorean (laughs) beachfront property or whatever it is. I'm not going to serve the city or my fellow man anymore. I get to pursue philosophy. 
he's going to actually call that tyranny. And, and so there is this very powerful kind of argument that goes on throughout uh, the Deofikis where if you're not pursuing the moral life well, then your perception of reality, that is your ability to see what's out there, is actually going to be warped by your turpitude, your dirtiness, your, your moral vision is warped. Uh, and that's straight out of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics in a certain sense, right? That you can't see mm-hmm. the good without practicing. But it is, it's just a very powerful, uh, powerful indu- indictment. Uh, let's see if I can find this passage. That's... I was going to say, maybe this is going to be like a projection of myself and revealed, revealed too much. But Kristen is also writing the same theory, which is, uh, you mentioned this is a letter to his son, right? Who's kind of just like blowing all his cash on vacation could it could it be that he's like his son is this person who thinks of himself as a philosopher but clearly isn't taking care of his own duties in life and this is kind of like a i don't know wink wink notch notch kind of thing no that's right it's a it's a very powerful uh a very powerful takedown of um of the young man's desire to be sort of oh yes i'm i'm philosophizing and like nah you're partying like you're you're taking it easy. You're not living discipline. It's very easy to slip into that. So he says, uh, this is a section. It's not in your reading, but I just want to read it to you. This is section 69 to your point, Kathleen. Again, we must keep ourselves free from every disturbing emotion, not only from desire and fear, but also from excessive pain and pleasure and from anger so that we may enjoy the calm of soul and freedom from care, which bring both moral stability and dignity of character. But there have been many and still are many who, while pursuing the calm of soul, which I speak, and here he's speaking of the different kinds of philosophers who push really hard on staying you know, calm and not getting into the perturbations of the world and the, the, the foolish difficulties of the city. He says, but there have been many uh, and still are many who, while pursuing that calm of soul, which I speak, have withdrawn from civic duty and taken refuge in retirement. Among such have been found the most famous and by far the foremost philosophers and certain other earnest, thoughtful men who could not endure the conduct of either the people or their leaders. Some of them, too, lived in the country and found their pleasure in the management of their private estates. Such men had the same aim as tyrants or kings, to suffer no want, to be subject to no authority, to enjoy their liberty, that is, in its essence, live just as they please. Now, I want to, just since we're there and we're talking about it, I want to point this out. Who does that sound like? Imagine he's not being judgmentally negative, but who does that sound like in church history? Who just couldn't stand the stupidity of the city and had to just get out of Dodge and start something else? A contemplative thing we might call a Benedictine monastery. Right, St. Benedict, I cannot stand this city. It's just befouled. I'm out. Cicero is essentially calling that kind of thing tyrannical. But here's the difference. With grace, Benedict, right, is called to go and leave the city by a special charism from God, a vocation to the religious life. You get actually sort of selected out, and you get a special grace, one that we find is actually very important, namely celibacy. 
That is to say, you do not start building the building blocks of civil society because you get special graces to remain chaste throughout your adult life, right? So then you do not begin family, you know, wife, children, and therefore education, neighborhood, village, city, trade, commerce, defense of the city, build up its walls, take care of its laws, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that the moment you begin to enter into the life of the natural or secular world, the Martha route, if you will, right? You have to, you have, you're duty bound to all these things by God and nature, right? And by family and your, your own bodily life. But with grace, now people, the Greeks can be proven right that you can be selected for the contemplative life out of those duties of the city, right? So it's, it's, it's a very, once you understand this dialogue, you understand that actually Christian grace provides an incredible solution to a problem most people don't think about anymore because it's just solved for us, right? How do you go and live the contemplative life, right, without violating the duties to your your family, your city, and your country. How do you just check out? How, how do you get to do that? Cicero's saying, Greek philosophers just sort of decided they're real smart, and I get to leave. But the problem with that is they still had bodily urges, uh, and that had ramifications, which either perverted them or dragged them back into a kind of neglectful family life where they ignored their children or ignored their wife or didn't didn't provide for the common good of both their family, their village, and their city and their country the way they would duty-bound be called to do. Anyway, it's a fascinating argument, but yeah, thank you, Kathleen. One other thing about this passage, if you look over in the Latin, uh, or you don't have to, but the supreme good that that was mentioned, that's the sumum bonum, right? The highest good, God our final end, right? This highest good. Cicero agrees with the Stoics some of the time, but he's an academician, so he kind of parts with them at other times. He's aware of all the schools, and he wants to kind of borrow from everybody. So he doesn't, he doesn't fully commit that the summum bonum is virtue the way the Stoics do. You know, he, 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 he leaves it open, but nevertheless, he's saying, look, these metaphysical questions, they have to translate into moral duty. Why don't we go a little further along? If you look on the bottom of nine, again, he starts talking about the supreme good. Uh, Last paragraph on page nine, the classification of duties. He says, every treatise on duty has two parts, one dealing with the doctrine of the supreme good, the other with the practical rules by which daily life in all its bearings may be regulated. Right, so duty has to be like, what's the supreme good? The following questions are illustrative of the first part, whether all duties are absolute, whether one duty is more important than another, and so on. Now here he's more, sounds like he's more agreeing with, we'll take the Stoics on for a second. These are the kinds of questions about a summum bonum, right? But then he says, but as regards special duties for which positive rules are laid down, though they're affected by the doctrine of the supreme good, still the fact is not obvious because they seem rather to look to the regulation of everyday life. And it's these special duties that I propose to treat at length in the following books, right? And then he makes this distinction at paragraph eight on page 11 between mean duty and absolute duty. I wonder, did anybody 
think about that or try to understand that or have questions about that. I think here what you see is the, the, uh, the beginning of this differentiation between the useful and the good uh, or honestum and the useful. That is to say, there are things you really ought to do. You should love your fellow man. You should obey the just laws. You should treat people with kindness. You should not defraud your neighbor. You should keep your promises justly made. They're just things you should do. But there's also things that would be good to do, but they're not right in themselves. Like, you know, it's really good to uh, make sure that you um, charge the battery on your phone overnight so that you have the phone all day tomorrow. No one's going to say this is your highest moral duty is to charge your battery of your phone. It's not that kind of thing. But nevertheless, it's extremely useful for you to be able to do all the other good things that you'd like to do. So utile, mean duty, the useful things, are wind up being very important if you really care about honestum, because if you don't have your phone, you can't call your mom the way you promised, right? If you're out of batteries or, or uh, um, you know, any, you think of the millions of things that when you don't concern yourself with the useful, you actually find yourself incapable of doing the good uh, that you want. So he's, he's constantly unfolding in this way these sort of the question of what ought you to do according to reason and then what ought you to do in terms of making accommodations for the fact that you have to deal with the complexities of life, right? And you have to engage utile seriously, the useful very seriously, unless you kind of give in and just say, I just only want to think about highest duties, right? Think of the person which we call pietistic, not pious, who like, I just, all I want to do is I, I just care about what God wants. And you're like, I, yeah, I do too. But now you have to actually think about whether you should use the highway or the back roads, right, to get to church. So if you say, well, I just want to know what God wants. It's like, God wants you to get out your Google Maps and <laughs> for traffic, right? Like, you actually have to sort of like work out some of the details of the useful bodily. Um, so he's kind of drawing this distinction between the honorable and the useful, and we can see them. So he wants you to see a, a theoretical difference between them. But eventually, he's going to build an argument that says, no, no, no. When you go search Google Maps, right, to find out which way so I can be on time to mass, right, that's moral goodness. That's real duty, right? And it's also the useful and expedient thing for you because you don't want to waste gas, you want to get there on time, uh, don't be stupid, et cetera, et cetera. Oh. So it's, um, it's, it's quite a thing. Um, so as you're saying, like, your duty is, it's like God wants you to use the brain he gave you and the logic that he gave you to figure things out. Yeah, that's right. It is, it's, it's just like that. Um, uh, but, but, but once you start seeing that, that call, right, to, to, to both think of things on their, the sumum bonum, think of the highest goods and what's right, but then, then also descend to all the nitty gritty details, right? You then have to see how those things are always one. 
okay. How, how is it those things are always one? Yes, Jane. Um, it's like the usefulness achieves the highest good. It's like going to mass. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. But, but you can see how people say like, mm, boy, it would be, it'd be, it'd be much easier, right? If I didn't tell that person that they were wrong about uh, the accounting, they were $130 off. It's not that much, but I am the accountant and I have to sign off on this. But man, that's like, they're going to have to go back and do like a ton of work. Uh, and that's going to waste their weekend. And then I'm going to have to process that next weekend. So maybe I just sign off, even though I know that, that it's 150 bucks off. I'm just going to sign off that this is all done and I've properly accounted the books for this company, right? That's a little harder case, right? Because you're like, wow, I'm going to blow two weekends. I'm going to tick people off. It's only 130 bucks. Is Uncle Sam even going to care? You know, hmm, why should I bother? with that because it just seems like expediency the useful would be to just ignore it and put sign my name to this document that says it's accounted for to just tell a little lie right and use my professional prestige who no one's ever going to catch you let's say you know enough about accounting used to work for the irs never going to get audited for that kind of numbers right why would you bother that's a harder sell like it's, it's more difficult to see the full argument and seeing that full argument is kind of the whole ball game in a certain sense. If you, uh, if you turn to the bottom of page 11, right? Uh, section nine, he says this was the last, it's a big fat paragraph in the middle of the page, really. The consideration necessary to determine conduct is twofold. First people question whether the contemplated act is honestum, morally right or turpitudo, morally wrong. Uh, and in such deliberation, their minds are often led to widely divergent conclusions, right? People get this wrong, right? And then they examine and consider the question whether the action contemplated is or is not conducive to comfort and happiness in life, right? So is it easy? And Cicero says, look, you're a human being. You have an animal body. And in fact, in your reading, he constantly pairs up Natura and rationis, you have reason, immaterial, mind, the divine spark, but then you have natura, you've got your nature, your body, your physical, the, the, the articulated you know, way you are, and you have to account for both. So you actually should seek rest. You should have right, a shawl so you don't catch cold. It's good to have a pillow on the chair for your guests and prop their feet up. And you should have cream in the coffee. And maybe you offer it up and don't take it all the time. But it's there. So sometimes it's a feast day. Let's have some coffee and some cream. Or I have my child who's only 14. And I'm not trying to ask him to take on the rigors of discipline yet. Right? So there's a certain kind of wisdom to, to looking for the expedient and the useful and the comfortable and the easy. You don't, don't want to take the hard path pointlessly. Waste energy and patience. But, but figuring out how to match these two things up is really the, the great triumph of this book. But at the bottom, he says, uh, of that page, the third type of question after both the moral, the moral and then the, the, the expedient, so the honestum and the utile, he says, the third type of question arises when that which seems to be expedient 
seems to conflict with that which is morally right. For when expedience seems to be pulling one way, while moral right seems to be calling back in the opposite direction, the result is that the mind is distracted in its inquiry and mm -hmm. brings to it the irresolution that is born of deliberation. The Latin there is videtur, seems. So moral reasoning requires you to have an incredible amount of artful reasoning. You can't just look at something simply. You have to look at it in an artful way that sees its relationship to everything else. Because how else are you going to know like whether or not you should, for instance, take the tax attorney or the, the, the accountant argument? What do you need to know to have a decision about that conundrum of the $130, right? Well, you'd need to know what giving your word is as a professional. You'd need to know what a signature is and what that means. You'd need to know the moral effect of a little lie about a small amount of money and how that might affect you in the future and your judgment. You need to think about the other possibilities. That's all, those are all moral rectitude honestum issues. Now let's think about it in a more crafty and expedient way. What if the guy goes and just sees the mistake himself and then sees that you didn't catch it and that you signed your name to it. You've ruined your reputation. They're not going to use you again. And then they're going to tell their friends, this guy's a clown. He doesn't really keep the books well. Right? So there's even a low argument of like, Hmm, not only is it wrong to do, I could also get caught. Right. And, and, and then the person would be, would be upset with me not fulfilling my duty and giving my word. Right. And I could lose a friend, I could lose some business, I could lose some of my reputation, my honestum, my honorableness. So there's this, there's this, there's actually a really, uh, a really great training of the moral imagination. We use that term a lot, the moral imagination. But I submit to you that it's usually doesn't get any further than like fairy tales are good. Uh, and I like the Chronicles of Narnia, which is fine and good. But the moral imagination is really takes you all the way up to the refinement of like statecraft. And what sort of laws should you put in place? And exactly how I ought to enter a room when I'm the authority figure or when I'm the number two or when I'm really just an equal amongst many in the hoi polloi of the office. Right. Or how should I present myself? when giving a presentation for the first time amongst five superiors and two inferiors in my office, right? There's actually a good and prudent way to do that. That's not foolish, vain, overly pusillanimous, cowardly, effeminate, right? Figuring out how to live the moral life and discharge your duties artfully, beautifully, and well, is actually really difficult, right? Takes real strain and training for it to become perfect but we're all called to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, which is why Cicero has been the preference of the church for so long, because he really does sort of lay out this very high road. He realizes we're all going to fail, but like, Hey, there's a moral reasoning is an art and let's get practicing. Uh, and it's, it, it does require a lot of uh, work. So mm -hmm. maybe what we'll do is uh, um, I'm going to, uh, let me just take you to a few things. I mentioned that pairing of reason and nature and then what reason does and how it causes you to 
It actually reason binds us, but so does nature. That is our affections and our bodily animal affections mm. bind us in social groups, create great love for children, right? We love our own little children uh, with powerful affection. Nature gives that to us. But reason also bonds us in speech and reason together, but also allows us to see the balance of all things. Mm -hmm. uh, he constantly, syntactically, as when you study Cicero, you realize is the way he uses words are like an image of his argument. So he's constantly reason and nature, reason and nature. That is to say, what reason tells you universally, this is good, nature. Well, but figure out the particular instance and all the useful difficulties of this particular problem, mm -hmm. right? Those two things together is what's going to create your moral duty. Because you could say it's always good to do X. It's like, yeah, but I'm, I'm crippled. I have a bad back. So I can't do X. So what would I do as an approximation of that? What are my duties relative to my particular nature limitation situation? But he has this, this beautiful sense in, um, uh, and I'm going to take you to a couple passages, just show you two things and then throw the floor open for questions and other passages people would want to briefly touch on. Uh, on page 17, the first indention uh, in section 14, he's just finished talking about nature and reason and all these things. And then he says, it is from these elements of reason and nature that is forged and fashioned the moral goodness, which is the subject of this inquiry. That notion of conflatur and efficitur, we're going to mold and fashion our character. This is the fundamental grounds of humanism and what becomes later Christian humanism with St. Jerome and uh, Augustine and then again with Erasmus and St. Thomas More, that really you're going to have to come up with a very fully realized image of what it is to be human so that you can then use that image right, to start shaping your character, to move yourself in that direction. Uh, and then he gives an account of the cardinal virtues. So that's one thing we're thinking about. Then he gives on section 18 and following, he gives this very short couple pages on wisdom. Uh, and then he moves on from wisdom rather remarkably and rather quickly and just says, okay, that's our first discussion of wisdom. So because he said, this is not what we're discussing. I'm not looking at the summum bonum per se. I'm trying to look down at the complexity of moral reasoning and moral duty in our day-to-day -day lives. But also the entire rest of the book is an instruction in practical wisdom in prudence. Mm -hmm. So he leaves off. He just says there's two errors, right? Uh, the first uh, error is to think that you know something you don't. And then the other, let's see if I can find it. And then the other is to um, be overly concerned with, you know, sort of over-reasoning, the two errors. First, we must not treat the unknown as known. I'm at the bottom of 19. And too readily accept it, right? So you've got to suspend reason. We pretend you know something you don't. And he who wishes to avoid this error, as all should do, will devote both time and attention to the weighing of evidence. The other error is that some people devote too much industry and too deep study to matters that are obscure and difficult and useless as well. Sort of the, you know what? I am a absolute expert in 1987 to 89 lunchboxes. And I can tell you everything about pop cultural use, like every kind of lunchbox. I can tell you how much they're worth on eBay, et cetera, et cetera. Question, Matt, uh, Dr. Meehan, do you have any reason to do that? 
<laughs> well, yes, actually, I, 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 to make ends meet here in Washington, D.C., I use my eBay account to sell these things and price them right so I actually do business. Oh, then you'd have a duty to have that knowledge. But if the answer was, no, I just really liked, you know, uh, the, the Transformers cartoon and that's how I got into it, and, <laughs> right? That's not, you don't have a duty to know that. This is the difference between studiositas and curiositas in the medieval tradition, right? That you, have, you should study and come to know deeply things that you need to know, things that are good for you to know. It's like, well, I just like to know about tea services and samovars from the late czarist period. Well, maybe you shouldn't because what else should you be doing with your time? Is that useful? Well, yes, I'm a Russian expert at the university. Oh, okay, well, that's good. Or my family's Russian and it's how I connect with my past and teach my kids. Oh, okay. But if you say, no, I'm, I'm actually a, a U.S. senator. Like, well, <laughs> maybe you should be studying something else like constitutional law on the side because we could use some of that or rhetoric or, you know, reading debates about prison reform. So it's that kind of thing that's excellent. And then lastly, uh, because we're duty bound to stop here, we don't have time to talk about it, but it's just worth noting his discussion of property where he says quite a few shocking things. Uh, including that property really is something that you have to be ready to let go of and that really, in a certain sense, it's not natural. Property is not natural to you. And the reason why he says this, that property is not natural to you, is because he wants to remind you that your nature calls you to virtue. And in the end, if philosophy and teaches moral duty and philosophy is a preparation for death, then before you die, because you can't take it with you, you actually have to learn how to part with all of your property, even your health, right? Even the last property of your body, if you will, right? But that's metaphorical. He just means anything that's not you physically, your body and soul, all of these things are not natural. And if you call them natural, you won't be called to give them in charity, justice, liberality, generosity, and practice what he calls the social virtue, societas. What he tries to do in this discussion after prudence and wit, practical wisdom in, and discussion of justice is not to get you to just see the old definition of justice, which is to do no harm and to give to each his due. He wants you to see also that you have to go beyond that to what Aristotle has a small section about something called decency. And he says the whole city would fall apart without it. Cicero says that's not enough. It's not decency, it's charity. It's the effective bonds of nature that we're called to love one another, right? That you have to give of yourself. And therefore, you can't just say give to each his due because then all you're doing is coldly giving the things they already are supposed to have. You also need to be able to give them more than their due. Love them, be generous, be open, be friendly. That's why he's also called the philosopher of charity is he sees our social nature and then he begins to build a very powerful argument for moral duty that includes charity and self-sacrifice. And he doesn't quite get to self-gift per se and the sort of personalism that you find later on, but he gets very close. That's why he's considered the great capillary, the blue blood that hasn't been fully oxygenated by Christ's grace, uh, but he's right up to the edge uh, of our own moral teaching. Uh, so maybe I'll stop there and see if there's any questions.
That's excellent. Thank you, Dr. Meehan. You know, I'm really going to encourage you guys to go back once we send the recording out to listen to the uh, first segment uh, where Dr. Meehan articulates the importance of studying Cicero and uh, other Roman philosophers. We did a, a seminar on Seneca last year. And um, don't let that go in one ear and out the other, especially because you're not really going to hear that echoed a lot for whatever reason. Maybe that's another talk. The importance of Roman philosophy is kind of like this like best kept secret sort of thing. So it's important to sort of keep that in mind. And a good way to do that would just be to go back and, and re-listen to that beginning section. Um, what we're going to do is just take a um, short break before going into Q&A. One thing I, I know, uh, it wasn't actually that recent, but a lot of what's a, a theme that's, you know, threading throughout tonight is this importance of maintaining this sort of integrity amongst us. So I think for Catholics in particular, we have this temptation to, to, okay, think of this like pursuit or this race of holiness as kind of like going in this direction and things that are of this world and going that exact opposite direction. And sometimes that is the case, but sometimes it's not. And we would make a mistake to think that we are supposed to sort of, to the extent that we remove ourselves from, we kept hearing this word tonight, the duties of the day-to-day, that we are making ourselves more available to God. And what if it's not that? What if it's actually we're supposed to be meeting God in those very duties, right? And you guys are familiar with the parable of the dishonest steward and that line where our Lord says, uh, the sons of this world are wiser in their own generation than the sons of light. And, you know, we like see all these fancy businessmen constructing things and moving stuff. And uh, sometimes we have this temptation to be like, oh, well, all of that must be bad. And therefore, we're not going to make any kind of impact on society. We're just going to abandon it. And that would be a great mis- uh, mistake. There's a couple resources that we're going to include in the uh, follow-up email. I just want to show you them real quick. This is going to be a link to the seminar that Dr. Meehan led on Seneca, um, as well as there's a talk by Dr. Cutterback, uh, Hearing God's Voice is Stirring God's Plan for Us. And uh, the reason why this talk came to mind was because I think a lot of people approach this talk as like, this can be like a vocational discernment kind of thing. And I think a lot of people were surprised that Dr. Cutterback was talking about very practical things and the importance of how you're interacting with the people around you. And it challenged this notion that we hear God's voice uh, only in very uh, mystical and abstract uh, ways, not that those two things are the same, and, and sort of brought back this idea of, well, maybe we're going to uh, hear God's voice once we get our act together and make our bed and do our chores and all that kind of stuff. So I just put that on your radar. Also coming down the line is going to be a talk on the uh, nature of a liberal arts education. That is going to be with uh, Reverend Bethel from Clear Creek Abbey. And then also in this quarter, we're going to be having a talk by Dr. Dr. Kevin Vost on the art of memory, which um, surprised me when I first heard about it. And so it'll probably surprise you too, that uh, this was 
because it's a sub virtue of prudence, memory was uh, integrated in moral formation. Um, and we kind of like don't connect those two things. We think of memorizing as just like cramming information in our head, uh, but it very much plays into uh, themes that were brought up tonight. Lawrence Beach writes in, Dr. Meehan, what does Cicero say is the basis of morality? Catholics say human nature and God's commandments. Modern relativists say nothing but your own opinion, likes and dislikes. What does Cicero say? Uh, he certainly pays at least a kind of lip service to the gods, but like any wise man dealing with the pagan godhead, he's a little kind of, uh, that can't exactly be right. But he, he, he definitely he, he's, doesn't have the conviction of faith, but he sort of, he, he says, look, you've got to obey the gods. But, but he's, he doesn't spend that much time on it, I think, almost to his credit in a certain sense. But, mm -hmm. that, but he nevertheless talks about it as like, yes, the gods, but there's a philosophical god that's probably truer than these stories. But he has some notion of a of a god that's bountiful and and uh, and social even. Um, but but it's all kind of it's not it's kind of vague. But but um, he bases most of his argument on the natural law, which is uh, and he even has in book three he expounds upon the golden rule: do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? He 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 lays out the golden rule as as a sort of foundational moral principle. And yeah, he's very much looking at the nature of man. What are we? And once we see what we are, body and soul, mind and nature, reason and nature, then we can start to see the kinds of things that lead to our flourishing. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the things that we should pursue. And those are called virtues. And uh, everything else is vice. Uh, and so the one leads to moral goodness and health in the largest and most proper sense. So it's both useful and good. Uh, and the other splits those two and therefore disintegrates, as you mentioned, Andy, the, the integrity, right? The different, the, 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 the opposite of that would be disint disint disintegration. And so making sure that you don't court death, uh, but court virtue. So it's, you know, it's a long argument. I recommend the book. <laughs> uh, but it's a natural law argument. Uh, very much, it's very much what the church does, according to natural reason. Very much. Kath this is our book. Kathleen, go for it. But just real quick, there's a couple of people writing in, kind of confused about, you know, how could Cicero get to this notion of a just God if he was a pagan? I just want to point you to um, there's a talk, Fides et Ratio, in our library. I think sometimes we mistakenly think that the field of natural knowledge is smaller than it actually is. The church teaches that a God can, we can come to knowledge, certain knowledge of God through the natural light of reason alone. So that talk, Fides et Ratio, might be a good one uh, to sort of stretch our perspective on that. Yeah, Kathleen, go for it. Just a quick practical question, um, Professor Mian. Do you have a recommended translation of Cicero's work? So there's a lot of them uh, out there. Well, there's not not a ton, not 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 relative to how great a work it is. But uh, there's Easy Reader. This is the P.J. Walsh edition from Oxford World Classics. 
but it's a little obs obscures some of the teachings, a little translation. Then there's uh, this is a little harder, uh, the Cambridge text version. Uh, this is Griffin and Atkins, but uh, and that has you know sort of greater notes. But I caution you, in the 20th century, there's a lot of snobbery about Cicero, and like uh, the one I usually recommend, and this would be my first choice if you have even a little bit of Latin is the copy that you were using, which is the Loeb edition. Uh, here, you can look at my... L-O-B-E. Yes, L-O-E-B. Uh, and it's the, the Loeb edition is Latin and English side by side. This one's Walter Miller translation. I, if you have even a little bit of Latin, you can look over the terms, which are very important. And you can even see, even without having much Latin, you can even see how he's ordering the tax taxes the syntax of his sentence to make sort of little images of his argument it's, it's really beautiful uh, and and it's a loose translation but you can go and check out the words he's using and, and get a sense of his vocabulary and and pushing hard on uh, on those things so I just I recommend if you have even a little bit of Latin this is worth it thank you there's a question coming in from Kristen and she's wondering if you can kind of just give a quick nod, yes or no, if she's on the right track. Uh, is essentially what we've been discussing tonight, does this boil down to the virtue of prudence? Yes, in a certain sense, it's, it's all part of the instruction that mm -hmm. you would need to deliberate properly, I think, certainly. Uh, and I really do think that this text, if you read it all the way through, it really is the kind of intellectual formation that helps you to uh, uh, it's essentially it's a series of exhortatory rules for how to prudentially deliberate in a correct manner. Yeah, I mean this is a it's a it's an instruction manual in prudence. Any other questions before maybe I just close with one? Well, yeah, Frank, did you? Yeah, I was just gonna. Um, it, this might be something better discussed next time, but just um, looking at timeline when this was written, I did a lot of study from Cicero from earlier in his life. He, I remember from. On my classical studies, he later in life, especially after his exile, um, he wasn't the same guy. He was a lot of talk, puffed himself up in a lot of his writings earlier on, but he actually seemed later in life to actually have a genuine kind of conversion, if you will. So maybe you can reflect on that. Maybe I don't think you'll have time for that this time, but I'd, I'd like to see from your perspective how that how that plays out in this writing, especially so close to his um, death. Yeah, I mean. So it's a long argument. Uh, you know, Augustine rakes him over the coals for not having the courage of his own convictions at several key moments in his political life. Uh, certainly people have called him a braggart, but I think that's less of a charge than most uh, think. And, and let, me, let me just close with an answer to the question I posed at the beginning about why the honorable as a way of answering at least part of the charge against Cicero which is this. The reason why he calls moral duty the honorable is because he realizes that we are social creatures. And that means that you cannot just be virtuous. You also have to be known to be virtuous in order to be virtuous, right? So if you're like, I don't care what other people think of me, but I'm a really good person. No, you're not, actually. You actually have to be a good person and be known to be good so that other people know to rely on you so that you can be of service. Because if everybody 
think of Shrek, you know, that the old DreamWorks uh, cartoon Shrek, the troll with the heart of gold who scares everyone and makes them think he's going to eat them. But really, he's just a really good guy. Well, that's nice. It's a fun cartoon and don't judge a book by its cover. But that's no way to live. The real way to live is that actually people can trust you and count on you. And they know you're a really good guy with good judgment who will come to their aid. And so they'll lean on you, which means that you'll have to suffer more because people will ask more of you and expect more of you, right? But if you, you don't attend to your honor and you don't let people know that you have studied or that you have labored or that you have sacrificed for this or that you gave up everything uh, or whatever it is, right? Sort of St. Peter, behold, we gave up everything. <laughs> You're supposed to actually communicate yourself because you don't put your light under a bushel basket. Cicero happened to be the wisest and probably the most just man currently in the empire, period. That's something that you have to get out there and trumpet. And yeah, a lot of people are going to be like, that's pretty vain, except that it's true and people need to rely on him. And it worked. He wound up rising to the highest levels of government by trumpeting his virtues. And those virtues allowed him to prevent a civil war and do a lot of really good things for Rome and for the entire civilization that we live in today and for the church. So yes, was he vain? Yes. Was he a pagan subject to pride and lacked the humility and the benefits of Christ's grace? You bet. But the idea that he was just a wild braggart, no, he was the most brilliant and excellent human being tramping around and he knew it and he knew that he had to sell it so that he could be trusted with more and more rather than have other people do great harm to one another. Uh, so it's a, it's a, he's a complicated figure, but generally speaking, as far as pagans go, one of the finest of all time. And if we judge him too harshly, I, I think we can accuse ourselves of a certain kind of injustice. Uh, Miss Mean, we really appreciate your time with us. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.